Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. So it's my real pleasure to introduce uh, our guest today. Uh, we first fell in love with Steve Almond when his book My Life in Heavy Metal came out and I've been informed that it is actually the 11th best-selling fiction title in the history of Skylight Books. So just FYI. <laughs> Eleven. <laughs> so close. <laughs> um, he's also the author of The Evil B.B. Chow, uh, the novel Which Brings You to Me with Juliana Baggett, Candy Freak, which made us love candy even more, uh, and uh, Not That You Asked. Um, he, uh, his newest book is Rock and Roll Will Save Your Life, and it will do just that. Rock and Roll Will Save Your Life, and the book will remind you how much you love rock and roll. Um, he is... Here with, uh, he's got a collection of short stories calling uh, God Bless America, is that what it's called? God Bless America. God Bless America, that's coming out in uh, the fall. And he's here right now with a series of uh, DIY books that are gorgeous and tiny, and I'm in love with tiny little books. Uh, letters from People Who Hate Me. Uh, this Won't But Take a Minute, Honey, which is uh, 30 essays and 30 short stories. Uh, and then this is three, no, wait, hold on. Three different covers. Uh, three different covers. You see that? Three different covers. Look at that. Three different covers. And then the newest one is Bad Poetry. Um, uh, we couldn't be more thrilled to have Steve Altman with us, so please welcome Steve Altman. Oh, that's my water. Okay. All right, so this, uh, this won't take too long. And if everybody buys six copies of My Life in Heavy Metal, I'll crack the top ten. <laughs> totally thrilling. Um, so what I want to do is read from these little weird books that I've been making, uh, which are, this one's even stranger than the others because it has three covers, and also it's a book that's read in two directions. They're little essays on the psychology and craft of writing or practice of writing and there are these little short shorts so you get these two covers and I, uh, I started doing the self-publishing in part because I was at a big major publisher trying to explain to a very well-meaning uh, editor who worries a lot about mm, how books are going to sell because that's partly what her job is now. Uh, I was trying to explain this like here's what I want to do. I want to make this little book and I want it to be half the kind of essays about writing that I wish I had read when I was in grad school, not craft stuff, but sort of psychologically and emotionally what you're up against when you're trying to write, and half short shorts. And I want it to be read in two directions with two different covers, it's going to be really cool, I'm going to put all this neat stuff, and I'm sort of trying to pitch it, and you know, her eyes just glazed over, just like, what are you talking about? Like, there's nobody's going to want to buy this book at all, uh, which she's mostly right about. But um, the point is that I sort of had this moment of clarity of saying, why am I trying to get a corporation interested in a project that is clearly way too idiosyncratic and personal to uh, make a corporation any money? It was very liberating. Like, I'm not going to make anybody any money on this. Why am I trying to get a corporation involved? Because that's the corporation's job. They just, they're there to make money. And that's not blaming them, it's just describing them. So, uh, so I, I made this thing. And I liked it so much, I got this incredible artist to collaborate with me. Um, uh, this guy, Brian Stauffer, slept with him in the late 90s and he owed me. He's actually now, he's now doing um, New Yorker covers. I mean, he's really like far too legitimate an artist to be doing this kind of project. But he just dug it. He dug the idea that we were going to do this thing together and he designed these beautiful books. Um, just as a quick note, this was originally a dildo, the whip. 
Um, and we both looked at it, and in a moment of pretty much unprecedented restraint, I said, you know, dildo might be too much. <laughs> and he said, yeah, I think you're right. I think dildo is too much. And we went, we pulled it back to wit. <laughs> Proud of myself. Um, but the other thing, the, the reason I wanted to work with Brian is because this image was, I asked him to design a, a, the cover of uh, My Life in Heavy Metal. I, knew, I loved his art and I wanted him to make a design and he did. He made this beautiful design of this female figure who's naked and if you come a little closer you'll see that she has thorns coming out of her and I just thought it spoke to exactly what the collection was about. And uh, Grove, my publisher, God bless him, looked at it and said we just can't have breasts on the cover because breasts don't sell. Um, nobody buys anything based on breasts. Um, and I'd just been so heartbroken. In fact, I have this uh, beautiful illustration hanging up in my office and I'd been staring at it for 10 years thinking, how can I get this to be a cover on one of my books? So after he made the beautiful, this beautiful cover with the sort of dominatrix and the nurse, I said, well, could we adapt that beautiful thing you made into another cover? And he said, yeah, and he even designed a third one. And it's really nice for people to be able to decide which one they want to get just to have the option. Um, so I had so much fun making that book and, and reading from it that I uh, decided to make this second book called Letters from People Who Hate Me, um, which I'll read some. Uh, and was again, these are tiny little books. You know, uh, this is 80 pages and this is 40 pages. I think of them as sort of bathroom books. They're like basically a one crap read, that's what I think. I briefly consider calling the press one crap read, but. I felt it might adversely affect sales. Any rate, um, so letters from people who hate me is actual letters from people who actually hate me. Um, partly because I do a lot of uh, political writing, and then I get a ton of hate mail from it. And uh, I get these letters, and they're very moving in a certain way because we get this kind of cleaned-up version of uh, sort of how the right constructs things in this country from Fox News. They're, they have to be careful not to really um, get too angry or aggrieved. They have to kind of try to pretend it's newsy or news-ish. Um, but these letters were a very authentic transcription of how certain people actually construct their world politically and morally. So uh, I thought they were fascinating letters and I, I really wanted to respond to them. And so I, I will read a couple and um, you get a sense of the book. Dear asshole, <laughs> you're a fucking idiot. And your daughter in the picture on your website looks like a maggot. <laughs> you're a disgraceful American, and it would have been so nice if you had been a passenger on one of the planes that crashed into one of the World Trade Towers on 9-11-01. Signed, Joseph Kelly. And, and it's, Joseph's here, so that's awesome. Thank you. We're working through it. Uh, and so here's my response. Dear Joseph, okay, you got me. My daughter does have kind of a maggoty look to her. For a while there, my wife and I were able to delude ourselves. I guess all parents do. We'd tell people her skin was alabaster, or sometimes pearlescent. We thought it might be the kind of soap we were using. But I think in our heart of hearts, we knew something was wrong with her. Then came her first interaction with carrion. There's some kind of, yeah, it's kind of a vocab word. That's a bit of an SAT test there. First interaction with carrion. There was some kind of dead animal in our backyard. My wife says it was a rabbit, but I'm almost certain it was an opossum. Anyway, Josephine somehow got wind of it, and we found her out there burrowing into the thing's eye socket. The neighbors came out to watch. It was kind of awkward. I guess it would be sort of like if you, Joseph Kelly, found yourself talking to some buddies at a party and you said, you know that Steve Allman guy? I totally wish he'd been killed in the 9-11 attacks. And this voice behind you says, yeah, totally. We should have killed that filthy infidel almond. And you turn around hoping to maybe give the guy a high five only to discover that it's Osama bin Laden. <laughs> so awkward. Um, so you kind of get a sense of what these are like. Uh, Steve, you are such a pussy. Uh, actually, you were such a pussy, Brian Holmes. <laughs> Brian, a couple of things. First, the word pussy is spelled P-U-S-S-Y <laughs> and not P-U-S-S-I-E, which I think would lead most people to conclude that I suffer 
from an excess of pus. I do not. Nonetheless, I get your point. You're not saying that I'm literally a vagina. You're saying that I'm a cowardly person. I'm not sure how the slang expression for female genitalia came to mean cowardly, but let's leave that aside for now. Here's the important thing. I'm not a pussy or a coward. I'm a chicken shit. It's a big difference, Brian. And us chicken shits don't take kindly to being lumped together with all the pussies and cowards and wimps and wusses. Chicken shittery isn't just some fad for us, some trendy lifestyle decision. I am deeply committed to running away from any physical conflict while shrieking in a womanly manner. It's in my blood. The truth is, I come from a long line of chicken shits. My daddy was a chicken shit, and my daddy's daddy and his daddy before him, and so on that way back to the days of antiquity. In fact, according to family lore, one of our ancient forebears was a radical homeless pacifist who flounced around the Sea of Galilee, saying chicken shit stuff like, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also, and blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. You can just imagine what happened to that fucking pussy. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so, uh, and here's one more. It's kind of a touching. Uh, Almond Joy, I would like to buy a copy of your book. The name of the person I'm buying this book for is Lick My Balls, You Fag. <laughs> I'd like the inscription to say, I'm a fucking liberal coward. <laughs> Dear... Lick my balls, you fag. <laughs> Thanks for your request. It is always inspiring to hear from readers. I'm curious about your name. It sounds Scottish. <laughs> Am I close? All right, so you get a sense of uh, kind of what these, uh, what these letters are like. And just in case people are curious, sort of the, the pieces that the people were reacting to is all, are sort of all at the end, so you can sort of try to line it up and make sense of it. Um, and then uh, the, the third book that I just made just a few weeks ago uh, is this book, Bad Poetry, um, which is another one of these very self-explanatory books. It is literally about 20 really bad poems that I wrote. Uh, yeah, but it's even worse. In my 30s. Not like, oh, I dug out my when I was 16 and I was a heartbroken, you know, histrionic teenager. No, this is like, already had years of therapy, gotten an MFA, and I'm still writing this badly. Um, but the larger point of, of the book is that, uh, for those of you who are writers, or any, I guess any creative profession, it's really useful to look at your failures. It's really useful to look at the, the bad stuff you do. Um, and I feel like sort of underneath every bad poem, there's a really genuinely interesting experience. Uh, and so that's, it's basically the bad poem and then a short essay about what was really happening in my life that caused me to write such a piece of crap poem. Um, I'll read one of those, uh, but I, I think I need to build up to it because it's pretty heavy. I want to make sure everybody's kind of emotionally grounded. Um, so let me read f just a little bit from, um, from this won't take but a minute, honey, the book of short shorts. And my hope is that, um, is that you guys will uh, have questions. I don't know if any of you have thought about self-publishing uh, or just the way in which the literary landscape is really changing very dramatically, but that would be lovely if any of you guys did have questions. I'd be happy to talk about more about how I decided to do it, uh, how it works, and um, how I think the industry is kind of shifting in a way that's exciting, actually. Uh, so, uh, let's see. Uh, this is a, not a funny story at all. Very depressing. Um, yeah, it's just hilariously depressing. Uh, this is called, at, at age 91, Anna Schmoltz of the Gemersh Unit Speaks. The Gemersh Unit was the unit of the Russian army that was uh, right out in front uh, at the end of World War II and was charged with uh, trying to capture the German high command. So they would have been the people who basically uh, you know, came across the, the Reich Chancellery, the bunker that Hitler and, and the other uh, sort of leading Nazis were, uh, were squirreled away in before they all killed themselves. At age 91, Anna Schmoltz of the Gemersh Unit speaks. We knew this. On April 28, 1945, in the Reich Chancellery, Adolf Hitler married Eva Braun. He kissed her hand and made her his wife. 
She wore a blue dress and a gray stole. Four days later, he and Braun entered a sitting room. She swallowed a cyanide tablet and kicked over a flower vase. Hitler bit into the pill and shot himself at the same instant. He had heard reports of Mussolini hung like a sausage in a public square and feared bombs of sleeping gas. He ordered his body and bronze burned. Some days later, a story circulated about Hitler's valet, that he had fed bits of the dead to Blondie, his German shepherd. We were never able to confirm this, though we heard the dog upon our approach howling at the artillery. The rooms of the bunker were low and dark, padded like coffins. We found in one the notes written by the physician who attended Hitler. His penmanship was exquisite. By the end, he was prescribing the Fuhrer 92 different medications for cramps, insomnia, cocaine in his eye drops, amphetamines with his tea, a vile seep brown liquid onto the linen bed covers, in another room, we found Goebbels' wife. Her six children were laid out on cots as if awaiting a bedtime story, poison chocolate on their tongues. I don't know if you guys know that, but Goebbels did actually kill all six of her children. It's a, a remarkable uh, matricide or infanticide, I guess. Above ground in a fountain lay a man who resembled Hitler, the same pallid face and black smear of hair. One of the fellows in our unit began to scream, it's him, it's him. The commander came, walking. A quick in after a quick inspection, he scoffed, this man wears darned socks. Just before dusk, the commander found Hitler's body and that of his new bride. They were in a shallow grave outside the bunker. They had been partially burned. Later, the commander came to my tent. He'd been drinking and his eyes were full of tears. Schmaltz, he said, I want you to guard this with your life. He handed me a box, no larger than a heart, though that exact shade. The commander said, his teeth are in this. I don't know why he gave that box to me, which contained the last remnants of the angel of death. It is always the women who handle the dead. We allow history to pass through us like a violent wave, and we hold fast to the present. I have nothing more to say. So that's kind of a pick-me-up. <laughs> Just kind of get everybody psyched and happy. Um, let me read a slightly more upbeat one. Uh, so this is a piece called Unfriendly Cashiers. Well, I lived in Somerville, outside Boston for a long time, and uh, was writing alone in my apartment, in my underwear, usually in a depression, and uh, was just never seeing other people. Uh, partly as a function of how unappealing I was to spend time with. Um, and would, but I'd go to the Star Market, uh, it was like the big social outing of the day, is that I would go to the Star Market and just be desperate for any kind of human contact. And it was constantly trying to engage uh, these cashiers in conversation, just try to get something from it. I didn't want to date them or sleep with them, I just wanted to talk with them. And I think it's fair to say they just really didn't want to talk with me. Um, so I wrote this uh, piece, Unfriendly Cashiers. Not rude, which would imply all the tired grudges against fate, as would bitter or hard-bitten or impervious with its slender caprice. Just unfriendly, as in not interested in being your friend, not interested in your clothing or chummy witticisms in what you're buying today, just there at the register with a name tag. My favorites work at down-in-the-mouth markets, the leaky emporiums with carts that are a tetanus threat, and off-brands whose lettering croons sweetly off-key. And what I like second best about them is that they, they watch everything, a step ahead of your complaints and stupid coupons, tired of your voice before you even speak. These are men and women immune to mood, generous only in competence. You and your strawberry soda and your salsa and your low-watt public friendliness face, they don't care. Make a joke and they'll stare at you like you're naked and disappointing. And what I like best about them is this stout refusal to prettify the situation, to obey the cursed slogans of our age with its pathological ulteriority and salesmanship, with its spirit the, col with its spirit, the color and composition of hot dogs. 
And best of all, those moments when something unusual and true and funny happens. When a spoiled kid throws up from too many animal crackers, or the unctuous new bag boy rams a plate glass window, or the manager slips on the ice outside on her ass, and the cashiers all in a row and against every grain of better judgment grin. Like some mean. Anybody been a cashier here? Yeah, and it's just you hate your customer. You hate your job. You hate yourself, but you, you hate the customers too. It's just get out. Don't try to interact with me. Um, let me read one more of these little short shorts. Um, and then I want to read my bad poem and then we can do questions. And uh, So this is called I Want to Buy the Guy a Drink. Who? And that's actually the first line uh, of the piece. I want to buy the guy a drink who, in the dead of a scowling New York January, spots my great aunt Meta on 64th and Central Park West, staring doubtfully at the icy crosswalk, and who, this guy, some handsome young fellow on his way to a bar with friends to drink, turns back, races across the street, takes her arm in his, and escorts her to the other side, the two of them leaning in, walking slowly, not on happily, somewhat sexily, in the voluntary lingering of what youth knows of what it is to be old. And more so, after shepherding her under the awning of the restaurant where she will dine, he turns back in front of all his friends and says, can I have your number? So that all Meta can do is smile and shyly demure in her humming Rhineland accent, an accent as rich as pot roast simmered for hours and delicate and beautiful this moment, one for the ages, one to make us young again, all of us, and foolishly hopeful as in love. All right. Um, so those are the stories, and if I might read an essay or two if, if there are questions where it seems like reading an essay will provide a useful answer. But um, I'll just burden you with one of these bad poems. I can assure you that these are, I'm, I'm not being coy. They're really bad work. I have the blurbs to prove it. Um, <laughs> yeah, all the blurbs. Uh, D.A. Powell's wonderful poet just calls them painful failures. Um, <laughs> And uh, the wonderful poet uh, Dave Blair says, uh, boring and sleazy as a truck stop. So that's just, the endorsements just keep rolling in. Um, now, of course, that's part of the charm of being able to publish your own book is I can just put anything I want in it or on it. And rather than having those blurbs that everybody knows are sort of promotional hyperbole in most cases, I could just have people really say what they thought of, of the book. And, and actually the blurbs, um, what they're saying about the author for letters from people who hate me are, are just actually excerpts from the letters, which, which <laughs> wonder, including one from uh, my actual cousin. <laughs> he says, as a relative, I find you and the progressive wing of the family an embarrassment. <laughs> so, the feeling's mutual. All right. So uh, let me read you um, Hobo Chant, Lafayette, Louisiana, 1937. It's a pretty serious piece of work. I'm glad most of you are sitting. It's pretty devastating work. Um, I considered whether to read this in dialect, and I, I just don't think I'm going to. But I hope you will hear it in dialect. Yeah. <laughs> just listen. And I know these are going to end up in a song. So I just I factually know that. Dem coals inside your chest. Dem coals is hot and white. You gotta change your mac and cheese if you wanna be my wife. Yeah. You feeling it back there? Yeah, it's probably gonna put you in the mood, both of you. Alright. Dem fancy names for grief, Shaw. Cause it's Cajun. Don't come round here no more. No more. Dem morning robes you won't wear won't fit in my shiffer robe. On behalf of all bad poets, I would like to formally accept the Nobel Prize for Literature. <laughs> I do so with a sense of humility. Really, when you're writing this badly, it's almost religious. It's like God grabs you by the shoulders and says, listen up, Cher. I realize you're an upper middle class Caucasian Jew from suburban Northern California with almost no concept of what true material deprivation might be like, 
But I want you to write as if you were a poverty-stricken Negro haunting the ravaged hobo camps of Louisiana during the depths of the Depression. Don't worry about seeming like a racist idiot. I am God, and I have chosen you. <laughs> then I say, geez, God, are you sure? I haven't been writing poetry for that long. I'm not even really sure what versification is, but God is so persistent. He just keeps saying, no, no, go for it, man. You're awesome. <laughs> I know we've all had these conversations with God, so I'm just sharing mine. So I would like to place God right at the top of my thank you list, and I would like to thank Jesus Christ, too, for having such a cool dad, and for not getting all jealous of me on account of all the attention God keeps lavishing on me. I would also like to thank the committee, and obviously, oh, actually, I should pause here, as I will throughout the remainder of my speech, so that you may gather yourselves. Okay, who else? Oh, Andre Vickers and Richie Glover and Tony Mouton and all the other big black kids who scared the piss out of me at Ventura Elementary School where I first began to grow my massive man soul. I'd also like to thank Philip Levine for writing They Feed, They Lion, which I read 197 times before writing my Nobel Prize winning poem, and from whom I stole the essential conceit along with my transcendent abuse of anaphora. Sadly, Levine, while he breached certain idiomatic levees, lacked the courage of a true minstrel. Again, I pause. Again, you collect yourselves. I believe ushers would do best to distribute clean the Kleenex I thought to purchase with a portion of the proceeds from the Nobel Prize, which I just won. The remainder will be devoted to an educational fund, the Macachese Shifferobe Legacy Project, which will fund more than a dozen partially disrobed PhD candidates as they study this poem in an effort to establish whether or not it marks the pinnacle of human artistic achievement. Spoiler alert, it does. <laughs> I realize how unnecessary this largesse seems to most of you and ask again humbly that you stop weeping. I am merely one bad poet, but I accept this award on behalf of all bad poets, we sworn enemies of the authentic, we fearless soldiers in the war on truth, we happily inebriated language pukers. Bottoms up, comrades, dem drinks beyond me. <laughs> so that's kind of the gist of uh, most of the, I mean, I should say that one's more campy, but most of the little pieces of writing after the poems are, um, are really very much about the what was really actually happening in my life when I wrote the shitty poem, which bears no relationship at all to the terrible poem, um, interestingly and, and revealingly. Um, but, uh, and I hope there are questions, because that's mostly what I'd like to do, is just answer questions if there are them, and yeah. yeah I, was, I was just going to ask about the decision-making process uh, that you went through, and you decided to do these DIYs, and it mentioned you had to talk to your agent. Yep. Talk to my agent? No, I talked to an editor. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have an agent at that point, I don't think. So for, I think, reasons that are now obvious, I hope, yeah. So I'm curious, like, at some point you just realized that it wasn't going to be something you wanted to take to a more traditional route. I think you talked a bit more about how you made the so I definitely got that Random House, which is a big publishing house, was not at all the right venue for, for uh, an 80-page book that is as weird as, as, as this won't take but a minute, honey. But I suppose I could have gone to like a little indie publisher. But it's, you know, after a while, I've put out a bunch of books with little presses, big, like giant presses, medium-sized presses. And after a while, you realize that every book is its own little experience and that sometimes it makes sense to partner up with a corporation because they can help you. They can do things that you can't do on your own or that you don't have to do on your own. But sometimes you're making a little project, whether it's a musical project or a literary project or an art, you know, visual art project, that is so idiosyncratic and personal that it just doesn't make sense to get a corporation involved. It doesn't make sense on any level. You lose some of your control and you suddenly have to start to worry about how to make this a commodity. These, at this point, are really artifacts. The only place where you can get them is from me, in person, for cash, like a drug dealer, um, or, you know, uh, at Harvard Bookstore. You can get them online. They don't have ISBN numbers, because that's how they fucking the man follows you. 
Um, that's how they're tracking you. And um, I'm delighted that I've had the experience of having some corporations basically partner up with me and the editors who I've worked with and publicists. God bless them for putting their energy behind my bullshit. But they're all, they all lost money and made me feel shitty because I didn't make the money. And that, I don't want to be worrying about money. So these were, um, I mean, I wouldn't worry about money, but like feeding the kids and making sure we can pay the rent and that kind of thing. I don't want to sort of start to confuse my worth as an artist with my worth to a corporation, which would be associated with my worth economically. So that anxiety of having put a bunch of books into the world and constantly worrying about whether I was being a good little soldier and making them money and trying to publicize the book so that they just wouldn't make me feel like a loser for not earning more money with my books had, was pretty oppressive by the, by the time I was in you know, talking to that editor about this project. And I just realized, you know, people complain about technology. I'm one of the central people, in fact, who complains about technology. I think it's allowed us to, it's enabled us to really f conveniently forget how fragile the human arrangement is. You know, it's really just an, an intermediary at this point. Um, but it's also created, it's democratized the means of production. So there's all these, you know, musicians figured this out 10, 15 years ago, that they didn't have to, pay 20,000 bucks to a studio guy with a Coke spoon necklace in order to cut a great album. All they needed was the songs and the technology and that they, you know, they were the equity. Uh, and that, I, I realized that that started happening with books about five years ago where rather than the vanity publishing being like this dirty quasi-porny thing in the back of a magazine, it was just something that the technology had made available at a very cheap basic level. And I also um, went to see the, the Expresso book machine at the Harvard bookstore. I live two tea stops away from the Harvard bookstore and, you know, my conception of how a book got made was like you get involved with this corporation and there's an, sometimes there's an agent and there's a contract and then they buy the book and you don't even start talking about editing the book for another year and then there's, you know, 18 months go by and you finally have the book and you don't even remember what was in that. You're like, oh shit, I wrote that? I'm going to get sued. Um, but when I actually started working on this book, I, a friend of mine said, you should check out this Expresso book machine at the Harvard bookstore. It's just like a giant Xerox machine. And it makes these books. So I, I had Brian design the covers and the interior. I had him send a PDF over, you know, just a computer file, basically. And I went over there one afternoon, and the woman who runs it, Bronwyn, said, well, do you want to make a book? And I was like, well, all right, but, you know, should I come back in six months? And she said, no, let's just do it and pressed a button that went curiously. And four minutes later, out popped this thing. It was warm. It was wet. It was, I wanted to swaddle it. I mean, it was amazing. It was like a little newborn. And I just couldn't, it didn't look quite this spiffy, but it was a prototype. But I was like, holy shit, this is actually a book. It took four minutes to make it, not 18 months. So once that happened, I was like, why would I possibly take the huge step backwards to try and sell this weird little personal project to a corporation? So, and also, I can put things in these books that no publicist or editor would let me do. You know, I just always get asked about what books I recommend. So there's the list of books that I recommend. And then I get asked, what albums I recommend. And there's the book of albums that I recommend. Isn't that awesome? I didn't have to check with anyone. Um, wait a second. This is the coolest thing. My daughter was walking around one day and she, you know, and she sometimes will tell little stories. She's probably three or f maybe just turned four. And she's walking around one day and said, one day, the end. <laughs> it was a very short story because I kind of looked at her like that's it and she's like it was a very short story and I was like yeah that's my epigraph that's perfect it's a book of short shorts one day the end it was a very short story that's the kind of thing that I just liked the feeling of finally having total creative control, working with this uh, artist who I respected a tremendous amount and just being able to create this weird little artifact. Now the downside is 
I don't sell a zillion of them and I don't make very much money on them because it co they cost me about half the cost of that I sell them for. These are 10 and the other two are five. This is a dime bag, the other two are nickel bags. <laughs> you know, so I'm not making a ton of money and I'm not selling to a huge number of people, but that wasn't the experience I wanted. I wanted the feeling of being able to have it be an artifact and I like the fact that you can't get them a lot of places. It's totally against what the marketing people say, which is how you know it's a good thing. The marketing's like, get a wide distribution channel, whatever you need, a multi-platform, and I'm like, you know what, I just would like to peddle it like a drug dealer. That feels like a lot cooler to me. And I feel like I, probably 90% of the books that I sell are in person, and that feels really good. I know who it's going to, I get to sign it. I know that they're going to read it, probably in the bathroom, but whatever, wherever they read it, that's great, so. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so the catch with self-publishing and the reason that self-publishing does have an understandable stigma is that you don't have the traditional filter of the agent and then the editor and, you know, the, the publisher, the, you know, publishers sort of signing off on this is of literary merit, we should publish it. So uh, certainly with This Won't Take But a Minute, Honey, uh, I sent out the stories to magazines and many of them were published in magazines, so they went through that process, but then I also sent the book as a whole and the essays certainly out to probably half a dozen friends of mine who I think of as pretty tough critics. They know my bullshit, they call me on it. Um, and then even after that, I went, after I printed up the books, I said to the earliest people I was selling them to and you know, reading from, I said, if there's something in the book that doesn't make sense or doesn't work for you, let me know. And I can just change it. I won't necessarily, but if I think it's good advice, I will change it. And there were a couple of different essays where a friend of mine who I really trust, in fact, Tom DeMarkey said, I really don't fully understand what you mean by this in that particular essay. And I just rewrote the essay because he was right. I was being vague. Uh, so that's another thing that's quite enchanting. This, this book went through a whole bunch of different editions. This is version 1.4. You can see it's on the spine. So there was a 1.0, 1.1, 1 1.2. So I did, and some of it was sort of on the fly. It used to be a bigger book, and then it was much smaller, and finally we, I kind of got the size that I wanted, which fits in somebody's pocket, but you, the font is clearly readable. Um, but all that to me is terribly exciting, the fact that you have that kind of control. And it is an extra responsibility falls on the writer to make sure that you don't just confuse the technological capability with the artistic worth. Just because you can press a button doesn't mean you're an author. It just means the technology exists to, put, to bind your bullshit. Um, so I've tried to be quite uh, meticulous in, in making sure that I'm not just, because it's ultimately such a personal thing that if I felt like the book sucked, then everybody would be like, God, you see that fucking bullshit that Almond tried to put off? You know what I mean? It's like my reputation, such as it is, uh, which is already pretty low, advantageously. Um, but I, I, I do feel like I, I, I sort of sent out to my good friends and said, help me out, make sure I'm not going to do something stupid here. It was it was it was a, was a comparable. Well, I mean, a lot of these pieces are uh, are uh, have been published previously. I've thought about them for a long time. Uh, these are projects that I felt like I've. They're exactly the book that I want to read. I want to read a bunch of crazy hate mail and responses and think about what's sort of happened with the right wing of this country and how, where they're coming from and how we're best to try to engage with their particular pathologies and grievance and stuff. Uh, so, I mean, I sort of knew what I was up to and knew what I wanted to do. And they're 40 pages long. We're not talking about, this isn't Proust here. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to say, oh, who cares, I just, you know, but I had a good sense of what I wanted to do, and then I just had friends of mine who basically looked at it, and, you know, I felt like I got good editorial guidance from them. I don't think, an, an editor would have been thinking, how are we going to sell more? It's not even their fault, that's just their job now. Right. Yep. Uh, in letters from people who hate me, I think you said there were 800 uh, hate mails you got when you uh, resigned your position at Boston College. Right. Uh, because they had Condoleezza Rice as the 
Right, yep. Of the 800 emails? Yeah, well, there definitely were some positive ones. Uh, there definitely were some positive ones. So, yeah, the backstory to the, the, some of the hate mail, um, interestingly, not the letters I read uh, before, but that's a whole other thing that people were pissed off about. Um, but uh, the backstory of that is, yeah, I resigned from BC when they invited Condoleezza Rice. It was an open letter in the Boston Globe, and it kind of went viral. I was on Handy and Combs and sort of became like a little chew toy of the right-wing media for a brief period of time. It was glamorous. And, um, and Sean Hannity in person, just so you know, does look as he does on TV like an engorged penis with an expensive haircut. Um, but a really attractive engorged penis. So, uh, so, so there, I got a lot of hate mail because it went out, yeah, and I, I mean, I would say probably I got, I never did a final count, but you know, probably about 500, you're an asshole, you're an idiot, you're a faggot, you know, kind of things. And then I got, uh, you know, probably 300 that were like, good for you, you know, good on you. Uh, interestingly, the, the letters, the, the, the letters, the angriest and most uh, threatening, because there's some letters in here that are physically threatening kind of letters, um, tended to come from, well, I wrote a piece suggesting that using the mantra support the troops as a way of trying to avoid moral and administrative oversight of the way that troops are deployed was a bad idea for a mature democracy. I don't think it's a radical argument at all. But, you know, when you mess with the troops, uh, it gets people very wound up. And um, so that was where the most violent letters came from. The Condi stuff was relatively uh, was relatively low key, but when you start messing with the military, then you get these retired military guys, and they're in fact, I'll, at some point I'll read you one of them. They're, it's a humdinger. So, uh, other uh, other questions? Yep. It, um, it's it's so interesting about the new idea, and you're contributing to it. Of of just publishing your own work and not dealing with the big corporations and so on. But doesn't it help to <coughs> also already be Steve Almond, who's had other books come out with bigger oh, publishers yeah. and you know that you can sell them and so on, whereas if somebody else did it, it just it looks kind of back to the old thought about vanity presses like, oh yep. well, she couldn't get right. a book published. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, I had the advantage of having a small but extremely attractive, if I might say, uh, audience. This is us. Here we are, you know, uh, on a beautiful Sunday afternoon. Uh, but that's, um, yeah, Bonnie's right. I have the advantage of being able to do readings and go to conferences and teach and you know do be in, in, in a position to hawk my wares basically uh, and have a track record of having published books with um, with with traditional publishers. Um, and it is a much more tricky question if you don't have that track record to figure out well how would I develop an audience? How does that happen? My argument would be that. You're really best to think based on whatever project you're working on, does it make sense for me to partner up with a company? And then what sort of company? If you're writing, uh, if you have had sex with a celebrity or a celebrity's pet, uh, and you are ready to write about it in, in frightening detail, I suggest that you get an agent and monetize that shit, okay? Because that is what is happening now. That's what's selling. If you have received an Anthony Reiner tweet in the last two weeks, you're a millionaire, okay? Um, but if it's a personal, weird, fucking, you know, a bunch of hate mail and my responses with my own little uh, kind of, um, I don't know what, lamentation about the moral state of the country, that's a very personal, idiosyncratic thing to put into the world. And I don't want to try to make it a big deal thing. I just want to have my say in a more limited way. And you have to decide based on what your project is, what, what the experience you want to have is. Do you want to try to go to New York and get one of the bad parents there to, you know, sign on and, and, and make it a book through those channels? Or is it a smaller project 
that you'd like to move out into the world in a smaller way? Are you content with having sales in the dozens or hundreds rather than the thousands? Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you, so you do feel like it's project by project? Yeah. You, like, you imagine yourself writing a book that would be a random house again, or, or is this going to spoil you and you might decide, you know, I only want to do it this way? I just want to say this is the other list that recommends all the greatest albums ever made, and the, that's Dan Byrne of Dan Byrne fame. Right. So, so if not, not, not only that, so did the photos. <laughs> and our sex life has revitalized, Dan. Um, yeah, you know, every author is different, but my experience with Random House was that I just, I'm very grateful that they wanted to make an investment in my career, but I also felt like I just lost you guys a bunch of money and I don't want to feel like that again. You know, I don't want to have that experience. The next book I'm doing that will be published by a publisher is this book of stories, God Bless America. And it's a very small press that the editor is an unbelievably great editor. I could have maybe shopped it around to a bigger house, but I think I've had the feeling of like, I don't want to be but I don't want to feel beholden to a big corporation. And you must know this from your career. It just feels like at a certain point you don't want to be beholden to a big company worrying about whether you're moving enough units for them. It's very disheartening. Maybe there'll be a time where I'll, like, if I ever finish this huge novel that I'll never finish, that I'll say, okay, yeah, I want to grab for that big brass ring. Let me see if I can get one of the big publishers interested. But. I have really found it liberating to do this. Now, it's not sustainable. Like, this is not going to cover the expenses of my family at all. It's barely going to cover my gas money uh, to get to the airport tonight. But um, quite a while ago, I recognized that the literary work was not going to pay for itself. It's best seen as a kind of an addiction, like a, like a bad sickness. that You just need to like figure out how to make money in other ways so you can support your habit. So, so uh, real quick, just you know, you're you're in LA. You're you're near the top ten. <laughs> I'm one away, people. Let's make some magic. Are you gonna? Are you, you know? Thought about writing. A lot of people who I respect as writers, I mean, it's such a great question because a lot of people who I respect as writers are now starting to make. T on roads in, into uh, TV and movies. And um, I get why. Because, I mean, this is us. We're the readers. You guys are here. God bless you. I don't know how you got here in most cases, but you're here. But there's not a lot of us. And it, right now, there are, you know, uh, maybe 500,000 people watching what whatever Jersey Shore rerun is, is on. Uh, the energy and the attention of the culture, for better or worse, is with visual media, right? With TV and movies. That's where the juice is. That's, that's where it's happening. So I kind of recognize that I'm, in, in staying with books and literary stuff, that I'm, I'm putting myself in a, on a certain margin. But I like it out here. I like that people are still committed to transcribing or, or translating little specks of, uh, you know, letters into machines capable of generating rescue. Like, I love that, 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 that there are still people who are paying attention in that way, in that sustained way. And I always worried if I did TV or movie stuff that I would, one, lose total control of how it works, and two, be sucked into this weird world that's even more craven and capitalist, hardcore capitalist, than the books industry, which is practically like socialist, um, you, know, it, you know, compared to Hollywood. Do you see what I mean? Like, and I don't know, maybe your experience with film has been different, but I just feel like I've had a couple of stories optioned, and every time I talk with a person from L.A. that's in the industry, I hope I'm not offending anyone, I just... It's just like speaking to a lawyer. Like, I know it's just bullshit. Isn't having story options, wouldn't that so different than if, if you decided, I'm writing, here's the script. Yeah. But making a film or a television pilot is a big honking project. And I know I have enough friends who have been involved. My uncle was involved in the movie industry. 
I can do this myself practically with the help of one artist friend and a, a machine that I can get to on the subway. I can't make a movie. I mean, that's a super big, huge, complicated thing that I would very quickly lose control. Even if I wrote a great script, I would very quickly lose control, which I can't even do. I don't know how, I don't know how to do it. But I'd very quickly lose control of that machine. And maybe it's just being a control freak, but that's always kind of frightened me a little bit. I definitely think about it. If somebody wanted to, you got, I mean, if you got some extra money and you want to offer, like, here's some money to write a script, I would try it. I'm not saying I'd be like, no way, I have too much integrity, I'm a writer. But it's more like, you know, you kind of choose who you want to spend time with. And I like spending most of my time with writers or musicians, you know, people who are just making the art. And I, and I know that those people exist in Los Angeles, but I also know that most of them are homeless. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I mean, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a business. It's a business, this business of show. Yep. Um, so I know that this, these projects is more like, a, like you're saying, like an artifact or like a piece of art because you don't have an ISBN number, you're selling it out of your suitcase, you know. Like Thank you for that. Yep. It's, my suitcase is up there. But, but, uh, but I'm wondering, because it is a DIY project and many people who are doing sort of, or are interested in doing DIY projects now, are also not only doing little books, but also like doing the digital, you know, um, mm -hmm. like ebooks and stuff like that. Yeah. I just wonder, I don't really have a question, just throwing that out there. Right. We're just spitballing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, so I, I, this has not been put in any electronic form. And the reason is because, again, if I can control the experience, and again, it's a little experience, it's, it's not a big deal, you know, it's not a big, but, you know, I would rather it be a book. I think of these, especially when I go to a college campus, which I do a fair amount, I love the idea that some stoner 19-year-old who's not a regular reader uh, would buy one of these little books and that it would be like a gateway drug to like, oh, books can be cool. Wow, did that not sound like a 19-year-old at all? But you know what I mean, that, that they might sort of reevaluate the worth of this thing, because most of them, anybody who's under 25 is reading, many, most of us are reading majority on a screen. Anybody under 20, it's 95%. Their conception of what reading is is something you do on the screen, something you do, you kind of graze. It's not sustained attention to the one thing which only has one app called Read It, Dude. Okay, so I feel like part of the reason that I want to just stick with having them be books is because I believe in books. Because I believe if you, you know, the only way to really have sustained attention is if you don't have any other option. You can't scroll away from it. This is it. That's the only thing it does is get read. Um, so that's, I've stayed away from, from that stuff. And I'm sure I could maybe electronically disseminate it, and, but it just doesn't, I know this makes me old, but I just, I don't think it's a book unless it's a book, you know? It's, it's just not the same thing. And I also like that people can take this somewhere, you know, they put it in their pocket, and it's just so nifty. I like how it feels in the hand. It's the same way I feel about an album you know, versus a digital download. Yes, it's still the music, I dig it, but it's somehow, there's no there there. There's no physical thing that I can put my hands around. Yeah, I'm sort of fascinated with like, the length of the, these books and uh, what your thoughts might be about in the digital age, uh, the people consuming, it seems like people are consuming what they read in smaller bits. Yeah. And the, the forms might seem to change, like the developing more popular Attention might not last longer than, uh, you know, 30,000 words. Right. Case, maybe. Right. Maybe sense of that. Well, I don't know. You know, I just think that the number of people who are reading, there's always going to be people who read and always want to immerse themselves in a longer, you know, in a different world and want to imagine themselves into it. I don't think that's going anywhere. But I do think that the generation that's in their teens and 20s it's much harder for them to take 60, you know, there's still going to be readers in all those generations, just fewer and fewer. And that's why these, you know, literary publishing is contracting. Um, 
I guess it is possible to, th I mean, it's true that part of my pitch to the editor for this is like, this is, this would be great for the younger generation because it's short shorts. Really, it won't take but a minute. None of the pieces in this book will take more than a minute to read. It's golden, baby. You know, I thought that would be a successful pitch. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I sort of feel like, uh, these these just happen to be little books because that's sort of the form that they took in, in my head. I didn't really think about how long they should be. I definitely thought I, d I want them to be cheap. I d you know I don't I don't want them to be intimidating. I want them to, I want it to feel like something that would be more approachable for somebody who might not read a book otherwise or might not consider a book like who considers a book too heavy and cumbersome to mess with both intellectually and physically. Um, and it is true that that they are sort of in little bite-sized pieces as I think about it and and that's probably intentional. Bad poetry began as an online thing. It was my Steve Allman's bad poetry. It was a column on this this site the Rumpus. So that's no coincidence that it was that they're pretty short pieces. Um, but I also think that if somebody wanted to publish a DIY book, you know, just do it themselves and it was a big long novel, if it was a great novel, that's awesome. You know, and if they can find a way naturally, organically, to find a readership for that, even if it isn't a huge readership, God go with them. You know, yeah. Every book made that machine. Yeah, yeah. For the moment, they that machine has gotten so popular that they. And it's not like I, like they have trouble when I call and say, hey, I need some books. I'm going out to LA and I know everybody's going to buy like 10 copies of each one. So just give me like 800 books. Um, th they can't keep up with that. So I might at some point. But I also, they're an independent bookstore and I want to support what they're doing. And, you know, I could do it cheaper at some printer probably and eventually I might do that. But for now, I like that it's a partnership. And part of it is that it's a partnership with a bookstore which represents a community of readers and you know geographically and, and uh, kind of emotionally too so yeah they make them all but it's not like there's tons of them I mean I would say probably over the past two years I've sold I don't know because I don't really keep records um, so I don't get taxed I mean so that because uh, I'm just not vain like that but uh, you know I probably sold I don't know you know thousand thousand of these guys something like that and and maybe 500 of the others um, so you know it, it, they, they definitely people like them people enjoy them I think people like the feeling of being in on something that isn't everywhere else um, and I like that feeling you know, part, part of the, how I got the idea was that I would see musicians and there would be like an evening that the, of music that they would make and then a couple of them would make uh, live CDs of, of the performance and I always bought them because I wanted to remember the experience that, that happened. And uh, that was in the back of my mind when I was thinking, I want to do this thing where I really sell almost all the books at readings. And frankly, I sell all of my books at readings anyways. Nobody walks into Barnes & Noble like, Where, what's Steve Allman up to? Well, let me find that book. Like, it just doesn't happen. Um, you have to probably pretty much be dragged to a reading and be a little drunk and then be like, okay, I guess I'll buy a book, you know? So I sort of also recognized that this was how my books were going to find people anyway. You know, it was through the live setting. So let me read um, maybe one more of these little letters and then um, we can just hang out and if you want to buy these books, you can. Let's see. Um, I also have a wonderful email exchange here that's pretty awesome. But I won't, it's... Uh, that was another thing that felt really fun to me. You know how you get into, I don't know if you guys ever do this, but you get into email arguments with people. And for a while there, before I figured out that I, my life was going to grow even darker and more pathetic than it already was, I, I was getting into these arguments with these people all the time. It was so seductive because they were writing these outrageously immoral, fucked up, angry things. And of course, that's just like, oh, that's bait for me. It's like they were flirting with me. All right, let's see. Um, so here's a, um, um, here's a letter from, from uh, the Condi Freak uh, episode. Hey, asshole. 
So were you resigning because your feelings are hurt due to Condi Rice speaking at the BC commencement? What's the matter? Upset because she has bigger balls than you? If it bothers you, uh, da 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 da. Um, uh, ba -ba -ba -ba. What a bunch of bullshit. You are such a sanctimonious hypocrite. Typical lib, racist, judgmental, hypocritical, and amoral, signed Nathan Scott. Dear Nathan, it's painful to hear you say it so pointedly, but you're right. Condoleezza Rice does have bigger balls than me. I realize you may find this entertaining that you probably sit around with your buddies and make jokes about Almond and his tiny little chickpea testicles. But I want you to consider how it would feel if you were the one whose balls were smaller than our female Secretary of State. What would it be like to move through the world in this kind of doubt? Like, suppose you're at some party and you're making a play for this hot chick and suddenly she mentions how good the homemade sushi is and you think, yeah, sushi, rice, oh, condi, balls, ah. And then how does that make you feel? Or say you actually uh, manage to get this girl home and you get to the point where the clothes come off and she looks down at your junk and she gets this expression on her face and suddenly you know exactly what she's thinking. She's thinking, what are those things? Oh Christ, are those his balls? <laughs> Look, Nathan, all I can do is appeal to your mercy as a fellow dude. <laughs> One who probably at some point in his life has felt doubts about his own testicular endowment. It's an awkward thing to bring up another man's genitals. This isn't easy. None of this is easy. So, yeah. So, again, if, if people have other questions, I'm happy to answer them. Otherwise, let me, yeah. Okay. I just want to say, uh, even though that's a humorous piece, you, you found common ground. Oh, totally. Well, what I was trying to do is, it, like, these letters in a weird way are incredibly honest, but they're also, um, they're really not about me. They're, I'm just an occasion. I'm a momentary occasion for their rage, but they're but they're very revealing. Uh, you know, they're kind of they're kind of heartbreakingly moving to me because they're really honest. They're they're unfiltered. They're not marketing. They're really you know a lot of these guys uh, uh, and and women, but mostly guys. I will say, you know, a, a lot of their deepest fears and feelings of inadequacy and you know uh, their their um, feelings of inner conflict about their sexuality, like it's all out there. It's like a straight transcription of the id of this country. Uh, and to me, it's fascinating to kind of react to that. And I want to read something that, uh, read another letter that plays with that a little bit more. Um, Dear Steve, I'm a Roman Catholic too, and I support Condoleka Rice. <laughs> as a brave and magnificent princess who is trying to save the world. Kundalaka is the embodiment of everything that is intellectually and morally good. If Kundalaka were Roman Catholic, I would nominate her for sainthood as the patron saint for the protector of freedom. Signed, Lawrence Hugh Colapalo. Now this to me is very moving. I mean, this is a guy who is deeply invested in the dream that we all share, that our leaders are really good protectors. So, I mean, there's something in that radical naivete to me that's very moving. So anyway, here's my response. Lawrence, I have a dream. In this dream, Kundalaka Rice is not Secretary of State, and neither am I. You, Lawrence... If I might just say, so far my favorite member of the audience is this woman. <laughs> I can just, you're awesome. Uh, yeah, okay, Lawrence. Uh, you, Lawrence Hugh Colapalo, are the Secretary of State. You wear a long white raiment with a collar of blushing purple. You wear no shoes. You travel on an invisible airplane and stop only in those countries where sorrow calls out, the teeming islands, the great plains of hunger. The meek gather around and you touch them with great mercy on the brow, on the cheek, 
You tell them you have magic, a magic balm and now you are anointing them and at night after everyone has eaten the meat and drunk the wine and laid down to sleep, you climb to a high place and listen to the music of the wind and dance alone under the stars and when you look down upon the wretched of this earth, their skins glow. They are radiant with the hope you have given them. That's fucking what Lawrence Hugh Colapalo wants, you know? Like, the government as almost a divine figure of good. And there's something radically beautiful in that. And I'm trying to, yeah, I am trying to kind of latch into that and say, I hear you, man. I wish that our leadership were like that, too. So, um, Okay, well, um, I hope you'll stick around. And uh, please even if you don't want to buy them, come take a look at the books because they're really interesting and nifty and if you're at all interested in doing DIY stuff, it, it's, it may be instructive to just check them out. And, and thanks so much for coming out. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.